Okay, people. First of all, one of uh, one of our chabura, one of our group that comes always to the classes, Janet. Her father had a surgery yesterday. He's 92 years old. God bless him, and he's not doing that well. So I'd like to uh, dedicate today's class to um, Janet and to her dad. And she's right now in the hospital with him. So we dedicate this class to. Her. Rabbi Pinto, come out of surgery. Sharifur Shalema. Okay, people. Tonight, as you know, once a month, we divert from Garden of Amuna to Rosh Chodesh. And it's always the Tuesday closest to Rosh Chodesh. Yesterday was Rosh Chodesh, so we're going to have today the Rosh Chodesh class. And as you saw in the Facebook and all the other stuff was posted that the month of Kislev, the title is Step Up and step out. So that's what we're going to talk about today, the energy of the month of Kislev. Guys, I mentioned to you the word Kislev, what's the first thing that comes to our mind from childhood on is the month of Hanukkah. So we're going to discuss this from its highlight point. Everything obviously is not done just the way it is. It's actually very interesting teachings on the word Kislev connected to Hanukkah, the Kas and the Lamed Vav, the 36. So what we're going to do is we're going to do look at the month of Hanukkah through the gateway, which obviously was set up to be that way, that the gateway of Hanukkah begins in Kislev. So when I talk to you about the energy of the month of Kislev, I am leaning heavily upon the holiday of the month of Kislev, which is the life force of the entire month of Kislev. And from there, we're going to look into what the koach, what the energy of what gateway we have for the month of Kislev. So, to begin, the world from a Torah perspective is divided into three categories. There is holiness, there is mundane, and there is impurity. Everything in the world will be one of those three categories. Either this is a holy object, when we talk about a holy object, first and foremost, what we're talking about is a chefseh mitzvah, an object of mitzvah, tefillin. Tefillin is made out of what? Nothing holy. The ink is made out of herbs. The actual parchment is made out of cowhide. The thread is made out of dried veins. The box itself is made out of the same thing, cowhide. So what exactly makes tefillin holy? And the answer is because tefillin is a mitzvah. So when you look at tefillin or when you sing the Zot HaTorah and you look at the Torah and some people have a custom to even point with a pinky to the Torah, you're not looking at the wood, parchment, ink. You're looking at the Sefer Torah. So something becomes holy when it becomes a chefza shel mitzvah. You know that if... Uh, you use a chumash, um, you have a chumash and a page ripped out, a piece ripped out. What do you do with it? You don't just throw it out. Why? And the answer is because it's shameless. The word shameless, for those who don't know, actually means names. Every word of the Torah is a name of God. The name of God demands a certain respect. You're not allowed to erase it, you're not allowed to destroy it. So what do we do with shemot? We actually bury it. So, obviously, again, we're going to see here that there's Kiddushah. Something becomes holy. Amongst Chassidim, 
very huge when we talk about the object used by a tzaddik. When a tzaddik uses something for a mitzvah, it becomes imbued with his life force because that is the life force of a tzaddik. His love for God, his fear for God, and his faith in God and the Torah mitzvahs that he does. So it's interesting, by the way, when uh, we bury a Rebbe, the 120, we actually don't use regular wood for the coffin. But on the fifth of Rebbe, they actually use the table that was learned on and davened on by the Rebbe in yeshiva, and so too, and the Rebbe of blessed memory, the same thing. Actually, they took where the Rebbe would daven, that's the table and the bench, and that's what they built it out of. Because the table and the bench that the Rebbe davened at and learned with becomes, on a certain level, a holy place. It's a holy object. So we have holiness. Then there's mundane. What is mundane? Mundane is, as they say in Yiddish, nishtahin and nishtaher. It isn't holy, and it isn't not holy. And not holy means impure. For example, kosher meat. Is kosher meat holy? No. But it's not impure. It is what we call chulin. Mundane. Think about Shabbos. Shabbos is a holy day. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday is Yemei Chol. Chol means mundane. We even have a, another day of the year, a couple of days of the year, in Sukkot and Pesach, which is called Chol HaMoed. On one hand, it's Moed, it's holy, it's holiday. But on the other hand, you're allowed to drive on those days. Under certain scenarios, you're allowed to even work on those days. So it's Chol HaMoed. So we have an intermediate category, which is called Chulin. And then there's another category which is called tum'ah, klipot. For example, non-kosher food is actually klipot. You can't eat it because it's klipot. So to talk Kabbalah language, kiddushah is the face-to-face -face relationship with God. If you learn in Tanya, you'll see that Rebbe defines what does the word kadosh mean? What does it mean holy? Nothing is holy. God is holy. What else is holy? Only God is holy. But why do we look at objects as they're holy objects? And the answer is that holiness is defined by bitul. If it has lost its own identity, and its only identity is that it's now the identity of serving God, it becomes holy. When we call a tzaddik kadosh, what makes a human kadosh? We don't have saints. What does it mean he's kadosh? And the answer is that this human being has become nothing more than a walking, talking, say for Torah. His thoughts 24-7 are about Torah and serving God. His speech, his actions, everything he does. In the Talmud, when you have an argument of an opinion, you bring verses and this and that, it's all beautiful. But then all of a sudden you'll see a statement. Says so-and-so that I was by Rabbi so-and-so and I saw him do this. Oh, if you saw him do this, this is the halakha. It's called ma'aserav. <laughs> what do you mean? You were just arguing with verses. What's the difference with what that rabbi did? This is a verse. Once you proved it with a verse, why do you have to go ahead and bring a story from him? And the answer is that ma'aserav has even a stronger halakhic impact than quoting a verse. Because over a verse, you can have an argument. He learns pshat in the verse this way. He uses this extra vav for that. And he uses the extra vav for that. And those of you who study Gemara, you know the process. 
But once you have Maaser Rav, a rabbi did this. If this rabbi did this, then that became a source of halacha. Why? Because what makes this rabbi kadosh is that in the process of his life journey, he has completely nullified the I want, the I think, the I feel. It's God wants, God feels, God says, thinks. Interesting story. The fifth Lubavitch Rebbe testified upon himself. It was a whole story in the famous uh, Vada Rabbanim, and a letter came in. He said to take the letter off the table. They asked him why. You didn't even read it. And he said something very interesting. At the age of 13, his father, the fourth Lubavitch Rebbe, called him in and told him that he should learn Orachayim, the part of Code of Jewish Law that deals with the laws of how to live your life. And he said to himself, my father knows that I already know it at the age of 13. My father knows that I already know it. So obviously what he was telling me is I shouldn't learn it with my mind. I should learn it with my heart and body. He testified upon himself that he actually trained his body to react to Allah. And that's why he said to take that letter off the table because when the letter was put on the table by the meeting of the rabbis, he physically felt a repulsion. And the minute he felt repulsed, he knew that's not kosher. Take it off the table. The fifth about Shabbat. It says in the books, actually not in the Lubavitcher book, in the other books of the rabbis that were there, it actually says that when they heard him say that, there's a, there's a language in Kabbalah that says the knees were knocking from fear. They knew that this young man, he, was then he became 22 years old, he became a rebel. They knew that this man doesn't exaggerate. And if he said that, he meant it. <laughs> so when you talk about Kadosh, a person who has trained his entire being, not just his intellectual mind, but through his garments, thought, speech, and action, he reached into his heart and he reached into his brain and that all became a walking, talking Torah, such a person is okay to call him a Ish Kadosh. And the same thing with objects. The minute something lost its identity of a physical object because that is transparent to the divine purpose it is serving, that becomes holy. And that's why there's entire laws of all the objects of the holy temple. There's a law called me'ila. You're not allowed to have any enjoyment from it. Why? It's gold. I'll pay back the temple. No, it isn't gold. It's a menorah or the temple. And when you looked at the menorah, you didn't see that it was made out of gold. You saw a vessel that served in the holy temple. That becomes holy. But then there's mundane. The mundane is not that level of total bitul. In the world of Kabbalah, you'll find that there's two different categories of klipa. One is called klipat noga. So let's just explain for a quick second. What does the word klipa mean? Klipa simply means a husk, a peel, a covering. Why? Because everything has a divine spark in it. But when you have a husk, a peel, that isn't transparent, it doesn't allow you to see what lies within it. Klipat noga means... Noga means light. Klipat noga means a husk, a peel, that does allow for the light to shine through. The example they give us when we study this is the two peels that there is to an egg. There's the thick peel and then there's the thin membranes peel. So klipat noga is still klipa. It's not holy. It has an I identity. I exist but at least it's transparent that allows us to connect with the divine spark within it. According to the teaching of Kabbalah and Hasidus, that is what makes a certain species of animals 
tahor, kosher, what we call today, and enena tahora, impure. And what it simply means is that the life force, the way it comes down from spirituality to these creatures, comes through the klipat noga. Now, klipat noga is a tricky thing. The Baal Shem Tov has a famous story. He was working with, walking with his students one holiday, or Shabbat, I don't remember which one it was, and they saw from the window this big chusid with a big strimal eating the meat. And he told his students, form a circle. When the Baal Shem Tov told the students to form a circle, it means that they should go into a meditative state and prepare themselves to see what the naked human eye can't see. He was going to take them into spiritual dimensions. They all prepared themselves, they formed a circle, and then the Baal Shem Tov would complete the circle with his two holy hands, each one on, on the student next to him. When the Baal Shem Tov would complete the circle was when they would be able to see what the naked eye can't see. And what did they see? They saw an ox sitting in a, sit in a kapota and a strimal, a bekesh and a strimal. And they all jumped. They said, what was this? He says, what don't you understand? That's exactly what you're seeing over there. Don't you see how he's eating? He's not elevating that piece of meat into becoming a human being, a Jewish human being serving God. He has lowered himself into, ah, this is a good steak. Mm, a little bit medium rare, but it's okay. So instead of elevating the piece of meat into becoming a portion of the human in his service to God, he allowed the piece of meat to turn him into an animal. The focus he was focusing on was whether this meat tastes good or it doesn't taste good. So Klipat Noga is, is very tricky. Klipat Noga, either you can reach into the divine spark and elevate it because the husk is transparent, it allows you to reach in, or it can pull you down. So what are you going to focus on? The Noga or the Klipa? A story about the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe once was coming to a certain town, and in that town he was staying by a certain Chassid's house. That Chassid was very affluent, and he had the servants that were all running the kitchen, but each one wanted to do something physical in the preparation of their Rebbe's meal. So each one of them decided the same trick without knowing. Each one went, grabbed a pinch of salt, and dropped it in the soup. I also participated in the cooking of the Rebbe's Shabbos meal. When they served the soup, obviously no one was able to touch it. They saw that the Alter Rebbe ate the whole soup. So one of them asked the Alter Rebbe, Rebbe, how did you eat that? It was unedible. And he says, why? What was wrong with it? He said, didn't you taste the salt? He said, from when I came to my teacher in Mazrich, I turned off my taste buds. He's so, I mean, let's just talk the new language that we have today with the books called The Secret and all that. Da, da, da. He so redefined the, neuro, <laughs> the neural messages between his taste buds and his brain that it was a different story. There was another great tzaddik, not from the Chabad dynasty, another great tzaddik, I believe it was the Alta Belzer, when they asked him once that it says that tzaddik is protected never to eat something that's not kosher. And we have many stories of tzaddikim that they brought something to the table and the tzaddik just wouldn't eat it. Later they found out it wasn't uh, exactly uh, ayayay kosher. So they asked him, how does it work? A tzaddik, there's a verse that says that God protects the tzaddik from evil, meaning non-kosher. But actually, believe it or not, there's another definition he gave. He said, it's very simple. Every time I eat something, the definition of eating kosher or non-kosher is actually right here. 
According to Kabbalah, you shouldn't even have pork intervenous because it becomes part of you. But according to Halakha, it works right here. If you can somehow get non-kosher into you, not through here, you didn't eat non-kosher. This tzaddik told his chassid, every time I eat something, I pray to God that if it's not kosher, I should choke and it and die before it reaches my, that spot. When you have that type of prayer, God protects you from, from not eating kosher. From not, from not eating non-kosher. So I'm just explaining over here how when it came to Klipat Noga, they knew very carefully that Klipat Noga has two sides to a coin. There's Klipa and there's Noga. Klipa can pull you down. Noga could be elevated. So now the question is, how are you going to serve this? So you could eat kosher. You're allowed to eat kosher. I'm not talking about a Shabbos meal, which is a mitzvah. By the way, Yaltarebbe's brother once said, mitzvahs, generally chassidim, are very, very focused on going beyond the letter of the law. If the law says to go so far, we go more than that. So the Yaltarebbe's brother once said, a mitzvah that the body enjoys, you should not go over the line. Very simple, why? Because is this about the mitzvah or is this about you? Shabbos when you eat. Oh, Shabbos. Shabbos is a mitzvah to eat. Bring it on. <laughs> Bring on all the great, the ice cream, the desserts, and the entree and everything. Now, today's brother said, those mitzvahs, you don't have to exaggerate. Davening, you should exaggerate. The eating, keep it cool. But this is all part of the purpose because you need to know. Klippa noga can go either way. It can go klippa or it can go noga. But then there's impurities. Impurities are total different ball of wax. Question. If you, God forbid, not you, if a person, God forbid, went and bought a pig and got a shochit with a long white beard to come and check the knife and have all the meditations and the kavanah and the bracha and then go ahead and slaughter the pig exactly the way you're supposed to slaughter a kosher animal, and they salted it, they took the blood out, and then he went and he cooked it and he made a whole big Shabbos meal, invited on one half of the table all the poor people that never ate. The other half of the table was the big, great, great rabbis giving dvatoras, afabrengin lachayim, and the pig was just part of this whole energy, and he used that energy he got from eating pig to then go ahead and help another Jew and give a shiur. What happened to the pig? Nothing. If you did that with a kosher animal, that kosher animal actually becomes a mitzvah. There's a story about a certain chassid in the times of the 5th of Rebbe. They had a fabrengin, and he had one little shepsila that would give milk, atzig, whatever it was. And they ran, and the fabrengin ran low on food. But it was a good fabrengin. They, they were fabrengin, they were talking, and then they were davening, the whole nine yards. So he told someone who was a shaykhit, go quickly, shecht it, and uh, prepare it and everything and salt it and then and bring it in and we'll cook it up and <laughs> the next morning his wife didn't know about anything the next morning his wife comes running and screaming someone stole the tzig what are we going to do we don't have no more milk we're not going to be able to sell it we're not going to make money call the police he told his wife don't worry no one no one stole it he says what do you mean what happened to it he says we use it for the fabrengi he says what it's dead he says no it's not dead it used to go bad now it's going echad. <laughs> it became part of a mitzvah. It became part of the process. So what's happening over here is when we talk about 
the mundane, it could be elevated. But now do that with something not kosher. Now you'll understand a very interesting law. Mitzvah haba menavera. If you do a mitzvah through an avera. You're looking, for example, for example, I, <laughs> I didn't have an asterisk, so I stole your asterisk. Mitzvah boma avera is the problem. Because if it's an avera, it comes from klipa, the three klipot. The three klipot cannot be elevated. So what's it going to help that you did a mitzvah with it? Which leads me into the next part of tonight's uh, discussion. The Torah is divided, specifically the mitzvot are divided into two categories. 613 is divided into 248, thou shall, and 365, thou shall not. Mitzvot ase, mitzvot lota ase. Now you can appreciate why. When you're dealing with an object of the mundane, klipat noga, that could be elevated, so how are you going to deal with it? By doing a positive commandment. Thou shall do this. Take it. Connect with it. Engage with it. And refine it and elevate it. Go out there. Make money. Make it in a kosher way. Use it in a kosher way. Turn it into part of the universal beta mikdash that we're, beta mikdash that we're building. But when it comes to something that comes from the gimu klipot atmeot, something that comes from the klipa that you cannot elevate, now you know why we have 365, thou shall not. So let me tell you how this works. Supper, you guys ate already? It was kosher. You made a bracha. You shared a word of Torah. After that, you're using the energy and you came here to hear a shiur. So that piece of whatever you ate just became part of a Jewish body and is serving God. Here's another scenario. Your fight was delayed. There's no kosher stores. You're sick and tired of sardines. You're walking down. There's this huge big poster. McDonald's having a special thank you. Until Thursday midnight, one dollar for a full breakfast. And as you're standing looking at it, the door opens up. And now comes that aroma of the french fries with the cheeseburger and it hits you like a bomb. You really want to eat it. And you look up to Hashem and you say, Hashem, no. You don't want me to eat it. I won't eat it. You just performed a mitzvah. You know the story of the two holy brothers? They were arrested once. And when they were arrested, they were in a prison cell. And in the prison cell, there was a pail that was used, forgive me people, as a laboratory. It was time to daven mincha, and you're not allowed to daven mincha when there is that type of stuff in your presence. So Rabbi got very depressed can't have a mincha. Time's ticking. I won't be able to have mincha today. Rabzusha notices that his brother Rabbi Melech became depressed and he asked him, what are you so depressed about? So he said, I'm depressed because I can't have mincha. There's a pail here. I'll be Allah and I'm allowed to have Listen to what he answered him. Says Rabzusha, I don't understand. Were you to have a mincha, would you have with happiness? Yeah. Why? What do you mean why? 
Ivdu Tashem Besimcha. A mitzvah, you have to do it with joy. He said, but one second, didn't the same God who said that you have to have a mincha tell you I have another mitzvah for you? That if there's a pail with that type of stuff in it, don't have a mincha. So why aren't you doing that mitzvah with the same joy? Why aren't you saying how amazing of an opportunity I have to serve God? I'm not going to dava mincha because God told me I'm not allowed to dava mincha. Why don't you do that with joy? The mitzvot I say, thou shall, we all do it a simcha. The thou shall not is not a mitzvah. It's also a mitzvah. <laughs> By the way, the end of the story was that these two tzaddikim started dancing. They started dancing that they can now serve God with this mitzvah of not davening mincha because God said not to daven mincha. Came along the guard. He started screaming, what's going on here? What's going on here? So one of the other guys that was there said, I don't know. They kept on pointing to the pail and they started dancing. He <laughs> says, really? I'll show them. He took out the pail. <laughs> and the end was, they daven mincha. The point I'm trying to make here is that the same simcha that you do a mitzvah with is the same simcha that you do the mitzvah of not doing with. Technical issue. Right now, we're not killing. We're not stealing. We're not eating non-kosher. Are we getting all these mitzvahs right now? Most opinions say no. Most opinions say that only when you're sitting next to someone that you really want to kill him and you don't kill him, you just do the mitzvah of thou shalt not murder. <laughs> it's amazing how often we do that mitzvah. Huh? Okay. <laughs> but anyway, the point here being is that there is a mitzvah and when you want it. So now let's go back to that McDonald's scene. When I went and I ate kosher, I elevated that piece of food with the bracha, with the guest I had by the table, with the singing, with the lachayim, with the dvat Torah, with the learning that I used that energy for. Now let's go back to the McDonald's scene. When that door opened and you smelled it and you knew that before Mashiach comes, there will be no kosher meal that you're ever going to get for a dollar, even if that restaurant was celebrating the greatest, biggest. <laughs> we have a different way of celebrating. Today's special, twice the price. Come on in. <laughs> Wait. And you're starving, and you said no. You should know that according to the teachings of the Torah, you just reached into McDonald's, into that piece of meat that's not kosher, and turned it into service to God. Please understand, and I, I share this after what happened in Mumbai, unfortunately. It's actually a yard site now. I shared that please people understand how many Satans are there? How many Yitzhahadas are there? How many are there? You know? Sounds like there's so many, huh? <laughs> there's only one. There's only one. And that same Yitzhahadah who's telling you not to come to Shiur is the same Yitzhahadah who's telling the other person to talk Lashnara and telling the other person not to keep Shabbat. It's all the same Yitzhahadah. Why am I sharing this with you? Because now you understand that every time that you weaken your Yetzahara, you actually have weakened the global Yetzahara, which means you've shifted the global balance between good and bad. But please pay attention to what I'm saying. When it comes to the mundane, the action is thou shall. Because you're allowed to. You can. It's transparent. I can connect with it and use it in a godly way. But when you're talking about tum'ah, when you're talking about impurities, 
The mitzvah is thou shall not. There's a famous language in halacha which is as follows. You can kosher and purify most everything besides earthenware. Famous Gemara about the oven that was made out of earthenware and became impure. How do you do it? What? And the general statement halacha is when it comes to that type of impurity that you cannot purify, shviratan zuhita kanatan. You can break it. You can break it, and once you break it, it becomes pure. So if you grind up this oven back into sand, and from there remake an oven, it becomes pure. By the way, for those who have ever dealt with this, it's not something we like to use, but when you become kosher, and you have a fine, fine china set, that's been handed down for three generations and is worth a mega amount of money, we use this loophole. We send it back to the kiln. When it comes back to the kiln, it becomes like a dover chadash. It becomes new. Because as long as it's not no more this and something new, you can't purify it. So what we're hearing over here is that how do you purify until Mashiach comes? How do you purify the deepest klipa? The unrefined, refinable klipa? And the answer is by breaking it. Now you understand why there's 365 thou shall not do in such a positive religion. Let's take it to the next step. Do you know that tefillin has to be made only out of kosher things? You cannot you make tefillin out of anything not kosher. Sacrifices can only be brought from kosher animals and have to be brought in a holy place. So in the norm... In the norm of our service to God, the only thing we can do with the outside is break. Break the strength of the klipa. We cannot elevate it. We have to break it. And that's why when it comes to the no-nos, the answer is don't go there. Don't be a chuchem and say I'm going to do it. <laughs> no one here would do such a thing. But how many people give a white lie, purple lie, yellow lie, outright black lie, and say what? Don't worry, I'll give charity from it. <laughs> I'll steal a couple of million and I'll give my tithings. Anything wrong with that? Of course it's wrong. Because what you're not allowed to take, you're not allowed to take. The Rebbe, in the, in the times there was an incinerator downstairs in 770, and very often the Rebbe would give his secretary a closed envelope or bag and tell him throw it into the incinerator. And those were private letters that no one, even the secretaries, did. And you don't read that. Sure enough, uh, his name was Label Groner, Rabbi Groner, one of Rebbe's secretaries. He was walking down the stairs and he fell. He tripped, the bag fell, and out of the bag fell things. He sees over there money. So he took all the envelopes and put it back without reading it, took the money out, threw the bag into the incinerator, and brought back to the Rebbe the money. And said, Rebbe, I the Rebbe said, you looked in my bag? He probably realized his job was hanging on a thread. He said, no, I fell, and the bag fell. But I saw the money here, so I figured maybe it's a mistake. And the Rebbe just looked down and said, I can't touch that money, it's black money. It's not, it's not from the white market. It's thievery and can't touch it. Interesting. Why? Can you imagine what the Rebbe would do with those dollars? What do you think the Rebbe would do with it? <laughs> this is a recorded class. I'm going to tell you it's not. Talk to me later. No, God forbid. <laughs> But uh, seriously speaking, no, the answer is no. So the point I'm trying to make here is 
that in the norm of the Torah, the Torah says there's that which I can deal with, there's that which I cannot deal with. Until the day when Mashiach comes, where the verse of the prophet says, and then God will wipe away death and wipe away all evil from upon the face of the earth. And that's why when Mashiach comes, pigs will be kosher. And the question is, how can pigs be kosher? Torah will never change. So it's not that the Torah is going to change. The pig will change. The pig will not only have split hooves, it will also chew its cud. Which in general, not for tonight's class, but I did make a note of it just to let you guys know that there's a huge argument in the, in the teachings whether the split hooves and chew its cud makes the animal kosher or the animal is kosher and the split hoof and chewing its cud only reveals to us that we don't know how to look the difference in the spiritual connections. It gives us a physical sign that you should know that this is kosher. What's the difference? So they're a different story. But I just want you to show you how serious this is. It is kosher. God lets you know through split hooves and chewing its cud. But not that that makes it kosher. That's one opinion. So what we're learning over here is that as Jewish people, we have a definition of that which could be elevated, and thus we must elevate it through the thou shall. But then there's the outside, where we cannot elevate, and we must break through the 365 thou shall nots. And what do I mean by break? You don't break things, God forbid. They're God's creations. You don't break them. What you do by breaking means that I break myself, saying I will not eat that. I will not do that. I will not say that. I will not look there. That is the norm of Torah and mitzvahs. And that is why there is nothing we can do with the real klipah other than keep on breaking its power by keep on telling myself, no, you can't do that. No, you can't say that. No, you can't think that. No, you can't feel that. So really what I'm doing over there is breaking the energy. I'm not elevating the energy. And that is the borders of Torah. Thou shall and thou shall not. Now introduce Hanukkah. Hanukkah is a very weird holiday. The definition the Mishnah is of Hanukkah, you will light the menorah, uh, the doorway from the outside at night. The menorah that we light on Hanukkah is why? Is because of the menorah that they lit when the Hashemunoim came back into the Holy Temple. The miracle with the oil. So if the menorah is supposed to resemble that menorah, there is a law Everything that the sages instituted, they instituted similar to the biblical institution. Well, the menorah is lit inside the temple, not outside by the door. The menorah is lit by day, not by night. So what's going on here? Why is everything about the Hanukkah the exact opposite? Even more interesting. The sages ask, how long can you light Hanukkah menorah? It starts at night. But how long do you have? Gives a very interesting statement. Until the word kalya, I'm going to soon tell you what it really means, but what it means to say here is until the nation that's called Tarmadoi, they were the nocturnal people, when they left the streets, then it was done. You can't light the menorah no more. By the way, the simple reason for that halacha is the whole menorah is about Pirsu Menisa. 
It's about letting the world know of the miracle. If there's no one to let know, then you can't make a bracha on the menorah because you're not fulfilling the mitzvah. The mitzvah lying the menorah is that the world should see that something's going on. So what's the latest definition of seeing? Was these people the Tarmadoiniks? This nation called Tarmadoi. They were the latest guys on the street. When they went to sleep, it's impossible to do for Shemunissa. You can't light the menorah no more. Comes along Kabbalah and says, the word Tarmadoi, which happens to be the name of a nation, spells out the same letters of the word Moredet, rebellious one. And then we don't say until the Tarmadois go to sleep, but we say the Ragle de Tarmadoi. Ragle de Tarmadoi means the feet of the Tarmadoi. What it simply means is that they're not walking in the street no more. But within the rebellious one itself, we're talking about the lowest level, the feet. And what does the word Kalya mean? Kalya means to destroy, to take out, break the rebellion. Listen to the Kabbalistic definition of this Mishnah. You have to light the menorah and keep on giving light and keep on giving light until you've totally broken even the lowest level of rebellion. Something very unusual. Because we don't engage with evil through bringing it light. We stay away from evil. Only Mashiach can come and slaughter evil. We need to just pull back, not give life force. The problem with sinning is that we take the omnipotent Jewish soul and its energy and we feed evil with it. That's the engagement in an Avera. I am using my godly soul within me and I'm using this life force and passion and pleasure and intellect and feelings and I'm giving it to what? To Klippa. So all of a sudden Klippa has a dosage of life force which doesn't belong to it. And that's why the Torah only tells me don't go there. Just stay away. I'm not asking you to make it holy. I'm asking you not to give it any life force that it doesn't deserve. Which, by the way, that's one of the deepest sins when having children through intermarriage. Because you're taking Jewish seed, if the man's Jewish, and producing a non-Jewish child. That is what sin is all about. How can you take that which belongs here and make that the life force of there? So all the time we just say, stay away from there. Just don't go there. Don't give it energy. Keep your energy away from there. But what happens on Hanukkah? On Hanukkah, we tell you no. Today you have a new energy. Today I want you to light the menorah not in your Jewish house, but on the secular street. I don't want you to light the menorah in daytime when there's light. I want you to light the menorah when it's dark. And how long should you light the menorah? Until you can bring light even into the lowest level of rebellion and define and redefine that. So we're looking at a very unique energy which doesn't even exist in the Torah. Chanukah is not a biblical commandment. It's a rabbinical commandment. It can't be a biblical commandment. It happened after the Bible was finished being written. It is one of the seven mitzvahs of our sages. 
And for those who like, you know, uh, you ever read those books for dummies? On the side they have like that little symbol for text. Make believe you see it. I'm about to give you a tech thing. You have 613 mitzvahs of the Torah, and you have seven mitzvahs of our sages. 613 and 7 equals 620. Add up the word keter, which equals supernal crown. What do you have? 620. Right? Kuf is 20. Tuf is 400. Resh is 200. 620. You see, those seven mitzvahs of our sages actually takes the Torah to a higher level. Because the mitzvahs of the Torah are the products of Chachma. Chachma is intellect. Intellect has its capacity. This you could engage with, this you can't engage with. Once you bring in the rabbinical dimension, you've gone from Chachma to Keter. Keter is encompassing. It's infinite. Keter tells you that I'm not stuck just to be able to shine by day. I can empower you to even shine by night. So if you want to know what the life force of Kislev is, focus on what just happened in this discussion with Hanukkah. We went from the finite definition and empowerment of the 613 of Chachma, which says, this I can deal with, this I'm only telling you, stay away. What do you mean stay away? This too needs to serve God. Don't go there. You want to serve God? Say no. Just say no. Don't be the Chacham who's going to say, I can go to hell and back. We don't know about the back. <laughs> the way there is pretty promising. The way back, we don't know. Don't go there. Comes along Chanukah when Jews sacrificed themselves and they knew there's zero logic in the few standing up against the many, in the weak standing up against the mighty. But this wasn't a logical decision. This was enough is enough. There will be no idol in our holy temple. It touched the Jew at a certain level, which took it from the rational 613 to the infinite, circular 620. And that is why the power and energy of Hanukkah is that while normally we tell you stay indoors at night, today we're telling you you can go out and light a candle on the street. You can even elevate and redefine that which is usually off limits. Now, obviously, a huge disclaimer. I'm not telling you that Hanukkah you can have <laughs> cheeseburgers. The rabbi said, today's the day. Let's eat trade and make a bracha. No, thank you. What I'm actually saying is that we're our sages have defined for us to be able to reach into that which is impure by shining a light there. So what you're not allowed to do, you're not allowed to do. You're never allowed to do, and don't do it. But on a spiritual level, Hanukkah in the month of Kislev is the time where we can even dare to bring light into the street at night and actually bring an end even to the footprints of rebellion. Guys, now we need to make this practical. So what are we saying about the energy of the month of Hanukkah? Right? Step up, step out. What I'm sharing with you is that probably each and every one of us has a certain talent, 
a certain attribute, a certain tendency that we learned, don't go there. That's a no-no. Every time I go there, I fall miserably. I do something that later I'm not very happy about. So we've all learned that. I had an uncle, she lived and be well, who once told me that he had a terrible, terrible temper. Off the record, he still has a terrible temper. But he actually told me once that he got once so mad at his sister, he actually pushed her through a window. And that was when he realized, I don't go there no more. I don't go there no more. If I'm in a situation where I see that I'm going to get angry, I'm going to get up and walk away. So while anger is a good thing in certain levels, he knew, don't even go there. Because for me, I am the Lamborghini. In anger, from zero to 120 in six seconds. The same thing goes with many other things. There are many people that I personally know that gave up music or art. Because to them, that was a no-no. Every time they got there, it was so powerful that the Yetzirah very easily slipped them from this side of the line to that side of the line. What I'd like to suggest to you starting yesterday, Rosh Chodesh, today the second day, which is also a very dynamic day in the world of Lubavitch. The books, the holy books were actually brought back physically, were brought back to the previous service library today, which is again the story of Hanukkah. <coughs> what I want to share with you is, I think that each and every one of us should take one talent that maybe we thought we should stay away from, give away. I think we should revisit that talent, only this time through the lights of Hanukkah. Maybe we should think to ourselves, you know what? I really always thought, just lock the key and throw it away. Maybe now I need to think that there is a way to use this the right way. Now obviously, there's a rule in Hasidus. If you can't suppress, you can't elevate. So before I can suppress myself from doing, thinking, feeling, saying what I shouldn't, I definitely can't elevate it. So step number one is don't go there. Guys, I've shared this with you before. A rule in the AA, 12-step program. You can't begin the program until you're sober. You don't come in drunk and become sober, sober through the 12 steps. You need to first be able to suppress and control, and then we can redefine. But if there's something in your life which you really were able to bring down the bull, you did grab it by the horns and you brought it down, and you thought to yourself that this is something I can never go back to, I actually have always felt so cursed that God gave me this talent. Tonight, the month of Hanukkah, it's time to realize God did not curse you. It's just this talent had no definition. It drove you instead of you driving it. Well, it's Hanukkah time. Maybe I can go back to a dark space in my life and say, you know what? This doesn't have to be dark and cold and locked away forever. If it's kosher, guys, if it's kosher, if by definition this talent is a godly talent, it just wasn't used right by me until now. Maybe now I could do that. Maybe now I can revisit something and say, you know, there is a Jewish way to do it. Why did I stop? I stopped because at the time it wasn't good. It was taking me to the wrong places. 
But now that I've got it under control and squashed it and totally suppressed it, maybe I can use this month's energy to slowly open up a little crack in the window and bring it home. Obviously, obviously, be very careful. I'm not looking to create any relapses. I'm not trying to tell a person who's been sober for 22 years that you can now do a social drink. No, you can't. Don't ever touch alcohol. But there are people. There are people with gifts of singing. They stop singing. Guess what? There's a Jewish place for a Jewish woman to sing. You didn't have to walk away from it. And I can go on and on and on with lists of talents that people felt in their teshuva process that I just have to walk away from that forever. That belongs to the Yitzhahara, the Satan. I'm giving it away. No. Give away the garments. Don't give away the essence. The essence is beautiful. The garments weren't so Jewish. So, time to strip it of those garments through suppression, total suppression, and then redress it. But dress it in a way that it could be done right. So that is the practical side of what we're talking about. Revisit some of those talents, attributes, characteristics that once upon a time you felt so cursed by because it's always gotten me in trouble. And then ask yourself, okay, in this month, under the strong dominating doctrines of Shulchan Aruch, never overstep the line, but through the strong dominating doctrines of Shulchan Aruch, maybe this is my gift that I will spiritually and physically be wealthy with. Maybe I should revisit it under a mentor, under someone I can trust who will tell me, stop. Stop now because you're going too far. Or don't do it this way, do it that way. You're getting too arrogant. You're starting to think that you're in control again. Back off. It's going to beat you. But done right, done right, you take your talent, your gift, your passion, and light the menorah, and you're on your journey to your destiny. Guys, a wonderful month.